From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, and this morning we speak with renowned cat behavior scientist, Dr. Sarah Brown. Dr. Brown has been in the forefront of research on cat communication, studying how cats interact not only with each other, but with us. And then, is it reasonable and responsible to talk about inhabiting other planets? We're joined by Zach Wiener-Smith, who has co-written a serious yet hilarious book called A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? That's all coming up this hour on Cool Science Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Okay, so maybe cats have a bad rap for being aloof, cool, and uncommunicative. But that's just because we aren't paying close enough attention to see what they're trying to say. That's what our next guest tells us, renowned cat behavior scientist, Dr. Sarah Brown. Dr. Brown has been in the forefront of research of cat communication, studying how cats interact not only with each other, but with us. And now she shows people the way to better understand their feline friends in her new book, The Hidden Language of Cats. How they had us at meow. Dr. Sarah Brown, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. So this is this book is great because so much has been written about dogs and their behaviors and their role with humans throughout time. But what drew you to cats? Yeah, so I I sort of stumbled upon cats really. I I was um always fascinated by animals as a child and went on eventually to study uh, zoology at university. And um, while I was there, I found the most fascinating thing for me was animal behavior. And so I left uni thinking about animal behavior. This is what I want to do. And was very lucky to find a job at the, what was called the Anthrozoology Institute, which was at a university in Southampton in England. And there we studied the interrelationships between um, cats and dogs and people. And uh, alongside it, I was allowed to do um, a doctorate. So I thought, okay, this is interesting. What shall I choose? And I thought, you know, there's been so much done on dogs. I'm going to choose cats. And um, that's where it all began, really. I studied two colonies of feral cats, and that's what my research was based on. And, yeah, worked with them, not those ones, but other cats ever since. So start. I was reading it, yeah, you did start with studying these feral groups of cats. What did you learn about their communication styles or how they communicated with each other? Because in reading the book, cats are typically solitary. They don't go around in big groups. But these feral cats, they did stick in, in larger packs. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So they, they prior to my work, other research had studied um, farm cats, groups of farm cats and cats living around sort of dockyards where where they found groups of cats gathered around a food source and they wanted to find out whether there was any social basis to these to these groups of cats. Did they just hang around and ignore each other or was there actually something more interesting going on? And they found that the society, the social structure of a, of a cat group like this, feral cat group, was pretty much based upon the female cats and their breeding and their communal rearing of kittens. And... Um, so I, when I came to do my research, it was around the time that Trap New to Release was was 
coming up as a way of controlling these feral groups of cats so they were neutering them and putting them back and so i wanted to find out whether the the cats that were living in these groups still had a social structure you know was the removal of you know the rearing of kittens and breeding was that ruining their social life if you like um and and i found that that it didn't that they still had a very strong social structure and and i looked very closely at the behaviors that that formed this this society, if you like, and one of the most interesting and important behaviours I found in their interactions was the use of the tail up signal. Um, so when one cat approached another with its tail raised, or if it raised it as it approached, it was very unlikely that any hostile behaviour would follow, but more likely they would rub on each other and do friendly behaviours. But if they approached with their tail down, then, then it was often a much more mixed outcome. So yeah, I looked mm. at a lot of behaviours, but that was my main Finding. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Sarah Brown. She's written a book on cats. It's called The Hidden Language of Cats, How They Have Us at Meow. Well, that's really interesting, Sarah, about the tail, because as we know, and is so much more obvious with dogs, the wagging of a tail would indicate that. But I have often wondered that about cats. Can you take that finding from the feral cat to are domesticated cats and do they exhibit that same behavior yes they do and and they also exhibit it towards us as many pet, you know cat owners will know that when they're pleased to see you they very much greet you with a raised tail and often a very excited quivering raised tail so yeah they they've used it in their domesticated you know home-based life as well you might be able to tell that just from that question I might be a dog person, not a cat person. <laughs> and I, I would, what, I'm asking whether or not you could confirm or, or dispel this notion that people are either cat people or dog people. And it tells a lot about the people. I mean, I know you researched and got your PhD in cats, but what can cats tell us about people? I think I think it's it's such a common question, and I think it, it's really fascinating because people like to sometimes brand themselves as a dog person or a cat person, but I'm never really sure what they what they think that means. Does that mean that they think they are like that particular animal? More are they more, you you know, uh, independent and you know whatever if they're a cat person? But I'm finding more and more these days that people like one of each. They're they're both. So, you know, many people have mixed households. I, I do. I have a cat and a dog. And I love what they both bring, you know, separately, these two species, and, and how also they interact with each other. I think it's fascinating. Well, Sarah, you talk about how cat personalities aren't based on the color, which, okay, I, I like both cats and dogs, but my favorite cats throughout time have been male orange tabbies. And apparently their orangeness has nothing to do with my my long my my love of them but have you seen personalities based on breed because you think of like a siamese cat if you want to talk about aloof a siamese cat is pretty aloof or the the main coon they're more like dogs so okay so there's no personalities based on color but what are the personalities based on breed yeah there, there are more associations um to do with breed because obviously as as you know certain breeds get more and more bred they certain characteristics get perpetuated and that includes personality traits such as you know the Persians are very laid back and um you know obviously the ragdoll 
breed is actually bred to be laid back and you know chilled um and siamese are very very chatty cats so some people love that element of them you know they they meow you know a lot to their owners so yeah there, there are definitely more associations with breeds i'd say than than the sort of long-standing associations with, with coat color as you mentioned before everyone loves uh, an orange cat they're the most popular popular color because people find them charming and charismatic and, and then you've got the tortoise shells that are you know they have a reputation for being feisty and having tortitude they call it and, <laughs> and being naughty torties which are you know which were all fun but actually um probably a little bit harsh because that's not really <laughs> not really scientifically grounded information well you talk about the meowing especially of siamese cats and i couldn't believe i just assumed that a meow which we hear as humans coming from the cats is a form of communication amongst the cats but you say that cats have learned have learned a meow to us and yes much much so. so when i studied my groups back in back in the day i um my groups of ferals i one of the things i noticed was that they very rarely meowed to each other and that was a shock to me back then because i thought oh you know i thought cats just meowed generally to each to everybody and everything but they they didn't and and obviously we know that cats meow to humans a lot <laughs> some some more than others and so it seems that they've actually developed the meow as as a way of getting our attention as communicating with us they worked out that we don't understand their more subtle signals their scent signals perhaps and they so they developed meows to get our attention and and that's what they do <laughs> very well I love that. I had no idea of that either. Sarah, not only are you a researcher and a scientist, but you're also a consultant for the cat toy industry. I just love this. And, and you know, everyone hates when they go to the pet store and buy, you know, spends $10 or $15 on a toy for their pet, and the pet ends up not even paying attention to it. So what goes into being a cat toy researcher or consultant? <laughs> Yeah, so it, I think it was really trying to um, instill into designs for, for cat toys elements that I know cats will actually enjoy. So, for example, they don't see color quite as well as us. So, you know, making them brightly colored and red and, you know, all these different colors is, is not necessarily very advantageous to a cat. We, we, might, we might buy it because it's attractive. But for a cat, contrast of a pattern would be much more attractive, something that looks like it's moving faster than it actually is just from the way the pattern is on the design or um and you know what what scents you have in the in the toy like you know catnip and other other herbs um so and making them small and fun and moving items just just trying to incorporate all these all these elements that cats like rather than big clumsy things that don't move around very much and so did you also then find that certain breeds of cats are more playful than others with those toys? And are there cats who just have no interest? That's really interesting. It didn't actually do any breed studies. No, um, I, I would definitely say there are some cats that are more playful than others. But I would also say that pretty much any cat can be persuaded to play if it's got the right toy. Even, even an old cat, I have a very old cat, and even she will, you know, bat leisurely at a you know a swinging toy if you if you make it enticing enough and i think play is such an important part of a, of a cat's life especially if they're 
like indoor cats that, that that don't you know don't get to play with things outside very important to play with the cats Sarah, you say that cats have developed meowing in order to get our attention to communicate. But what other forms of communication are the cats exhibiting? What signals are they giving out to their their people, not their owners, because cats are never owned, that we are missing out on? I think they're mainly scent signals. The go-to method of communication for a cat is scent. And so their ancestors would have communicated by scent because they were solitary creatures that didn't really need many other forms of communication. So even though cats today, our domesticated cats, have other ways of getting our attention, scent is still hugely important. And so the things like scratching, for example, that for many people is just an irritating behavior that cats do around the house and we try and focus it where we can onto scratching posts and things. But it's actually a really important really important behavior natural behavior for them because not only does it help them maintain their their claws by you know removing the outer husks but it also leaves a scent signal they have little scent glands between their toes and every time they scratch on the surface they leave a scent mark and that's hugely important for a cat and it also leaves a visual mark as we well know which is another signal for them and we, although we might see the visual mark we wouldn't know that there was a scent mark there and, and know that perhaps that's really important for the cat. I think one of the most obvious forms of communication that we've all experienced from a cat is when they purr. Yes. Now, rumor, I, rumor has it that they still don't know how cats purr. So can, can you talk more about this whole thing of purring? Yes, so it, it's uh, yes, it's a very um, complicated um, <laughs> system, which has which had much debate. And actually, anyway, so basically they think what they did think was that the um, purring occurs via signals from the brain that that make the um, vocal cords vibrate at such a, a rate that it, as the cat breathes in and out, it makes this rumbling purring sound. Um, recently saw some new research that I don't know the details of, but, but questioned that. So I think it's an ongoing area for scientists to actually get to the bottom of. I think it's really interesting that some of the big cats purr um, and some of the other big cats don't purr, they roar instead. So it's something to do, you know, going on there with the vocal cords that makes bigger species roar instead of purring. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I think about lions roaring and how... Uh, yeah, they can't purr. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So in your book, The Hidden Language of Cats, each of the chapters kind of dives into a different form of communication. And a lot of them are things that even the even cat owners probably don't know about. So you talk about the different ear movements. Uh, what, what do cats do with their ears to communicate? So the ear movements that we notice are probably sort of three different movement so you your cat when it's sort of happy and content will have its ears sort of alert and straight up whereas a, a scared cat a frightened anxious cat might put its ears very flat and out to the side that's a defensive sort of make yourself small type move and then an aggressive cat will swivel its ears back and back and not flat but sort of sort of slightly flattened rotate them backwards and that's more of an aggressive stance and those are the sort of traditional sort of postures that we would think of as of cat ear movements but more detailed analysis of videos of cats moving their ears has shown that they they actually have seven different ear positions that they can that they can create not only that but their ears 
rotate independently and they can move them 180 degrees. So their cats, their, their ears are constantly moving and changing position and listening in every direction. So they actually have very, very little reason to ignore us. Which is what they do a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings up a question about this reputation that cats have gotten as being aloof and ignoring humans. What are they really doing? I think what they are doing is really trying very hard to communicate, but because they come from a solitary ancestor that, you know, as I said before, communicates by scent, they've, they've had to develop new ways of getting attention from us and also new ways of communicating with each other. So I think they're still pretty much on the on a journey of, of you know, learning to communicate with us. And we need to try a bit harder to look at their ways, their methods of communication to understand them. I think, think they do work really hard at it. We just don't always notice their tail movements, the way they rub around us, their eye contact. We, we, we ignore so much of it. We notice very little except possibly meows and you know, when the tail goes up or they nudge us, we, we might notice, but we don't notice everything. Well, Sarah, you say you have a dog and a cat and saying that cats use scent as a communication tool. Do you find your dog picking up on some of those scent indicators from your cat? Yes, I love the interaction between the dog and the cat because they have to learn each other's behaviors. I think not only scent, but for example, what you've mentioned before about tail movements, you know, tail tail swishing in a cat is not not good news, whereas tail wagging in a dog is, you know, a happy behaviour. And um, similarly, my dog cats will learn, and other, other cats and dogs have to learn this, that cats like to greet each other often with their noses. So they touch noses rather than sniffing each other's behinds, which is what dogs do. And my dog did this for a long time until he finally realized from learning uh, from her um, that, that he needed to approach from the front. So a lot of this interaction and goes on with, with, with the obvious behaviors. So I imagine there's to be a huge amount going on with scent. Mm -hmm. Well, in your book, you also talk about the history of cats and the role they've played throughout time. And, you know, we'll say that dogs were domesticated by humans and became part of the, the tribe, if you will. But it seems like cats, more, more than being, instead of being domesticated, they just kind of joined us. What, what, what area, what was the first cat that was actually, I hate to say domesticated, but became part of human culture? Where was that? Yeah, so um, studies have shown that our domestic cats today are descended from a small solitary wildcat species known as the North, North African wildcat, um, which came from an area called the Fertile Crescent, which is a sort of crescent-shaped region in Western Asia, Northern Africa, that sort of equates to modern-day countries of Iraq, Turkey, Syria, around, around there. But anyway, around about 10,000 years ago, um, human communities there started changing from hunter-gathering to growing crops. And so they developed settlements, little villages. And in these new farming communities, the, they began to store their grain from the crops and these stores of grain attracted rodents. And these rodents in turn attracted the attention of the wildcats living in the area. And they would hang around the villages and hang around the grain stores, hoping for a, a mouse. And it's thought that the farmers realized that these wildcats were quite useful as pest controllers and so would have tolerated them. 
And over time, um, the wildcats gradually adapted to the presence of humans and to the presence of each other. And, and so a sort of mutual relationship developed between man and, and wildcat. And then probably the braver wildcats eventually decided to venture into the farmer's homes and they would have had kittens. And then these kittens would have grown up tamer. And it's thought that that's how it sort of began, that they sort of just nudged their way over the threshold into our homes and kind of self-domesticated themselves. We didn't decide to, all right, there's a good looking animal. We're going to domesticate that. I think it just, they just did it themselves. Mm. That's interesting. And it makes me reflect on, well, if cats were first recognized as really good mousers, I think that a lot of people, especially if they live in rural areas, have cats as mousers and keep them relatively feral. Um, and it's always, as someone who's never owned a cat, but has thought of it for that exact purpose, and I've had dogs, I'm always amazed by when people who just have cats go on vacation and they leave their cats behind and I've always thought maybe it's coming from that perspective of being a dog owner. Like, how can you just leave your cat alone? Doesn't it suffer? And I'm wondering as a cat researcher, what your thoughts are on that. Do cats suffer if we just leave them alone and make sure they have food and water? Um, well, yeah, hopefully they would always provide food and water <laughs> if they went away. But I think um, cats, um, perhaps slightly differently to, to dogs, value very much their, their space, their territory. And so they like to stay where they are. So probably traveling away, you know, on, a, on whatever vacation you happen to go on is, is more stressful for a cat than it would be for a dog. And if you can provide someone to come in and, you know, maybe make a bit of a fuss of them and feed them and make sure their litter box is empty, emptied regularly, I think it's sometimes kinder to leave them behind. I'm sure, um, some people would disagree and that their cats are very good travelers and they like to travel and and i think it very much depends on the cat the, you know the, the personality of the cat but certainly cats that are outdoor cats that like to you know wander around their their local you know around their home environment would probably enjoy staying at home better yeah yeah that's interesting um Going back to sort of the domestication of cats, wondering about, you know, if, if you know anything about ancient Egypt or even, I guess, even if you don't, but you look at ancient Egyptian art and it's, it feels to me that not only cats are revered in that, in that culture, but humans often were depicted with cat-like features. And I don't know if you got into any of this or what that history suggests, but I'm curious about that. Yeah. So in Egypt, so I think a similar sort of process that I described that happened in the Fertile Crescent, a similar thing happened around Egypt. And maybe a little bit later, we, we know that certainly by about three and a half thousand years ago, that the cats there were very much living in people's homes and, you know, under the tables. And we can see all that in the beautiful pictures they they drew um but yeah the in egypt things took a different turn and they became as you said very revered through associations with goddesses like bastet and i think the bastet sort of image is is the one you're talking about where you sort of had a woman type cat image 
which which were perpetuated you know with with other goddesses as well um so i think that's probably where that comes from but they were they had a very different sort of existence i think in in egypt a very a very revered one well susan in your book you talk about some of the common myths about cats share those with us with our listeners the myths i think one of my least favorite myths <laughs> is that black cats are bad luck because i think that they've had such a hard time i don't know if black cats have the hardest time being adopted in rescue situations because of their association with evil and witches and all the stigmas they got from the middle ages and um actually they're just really nice cats <laughs> most of the time and just like just like any other cat and um also nowadays they often don't get adopted because they're hard to take photographs of which i find really sad um because you know obviously you know that's not why you have a cat really well i grew up with black cats we always loved black cats in my family well one myth that i've experienced through having cats or living with cats is that they can be trained can cats actually be trained because I've never seen anybody really have that much luck with them because they still get on the counter and knock everything off. <laughs> yes, they can be trained. Um, there's whole books on it, and I, I I think it's amazing how much you can train them. Most important things, I think, to train them to do is to be, for example, familiar with the cat carrier that you might take them to the vet in, and that's the most useful you know, outlet for training so you can leave their cat box around and you know train them to sleep in it and go in it for treats and make it a familiar item rather than a thing that comes out once a year to it you know traipsed off to the vet so i think and you can teach them tricks and things but they, they are very receptive to learning cats love to love to interact and learn and you know, certainly like to get treats so in the same way as dogs so in some yeah well dr sarah brown this is going to be horrible, but this has been a perfectly fun interview. <laughs> um, your your new book is The Hidden Language of Cats, How They Have Us at Meow. Uh, Dr. Brown, thank you for joining us on Cool Science Radio. And I think this this is very much a dog town here in Park City, but I, I know there's plenty of cat people out there as well, and it's going to give them all a lot to, to think on. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Are we ready to settle space? The Blue Origin and SpaceX missions have reignited humanity's interest in the final frontier. Elon Musk even predicts that humans will settle Mars by 2050. Earth is not well, and the promise of starting life anew somewhere far, far away. No climate change, no war, no Facebook. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Beckons. Join us to explore this topic with a large dose of humor thrown in is Zach Wienersmith. After years of research, Zach and his co-writer and wife, Dr. Kelly Wienersmith, have written a new book, A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? Zach Wienersmith, welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm excited to be here. All right. This is going to be a big question, but you can probably keep it simple. What do sci-fi movies get wrong about living in space, specifically oh. in our solar system? I would say, I mean, it's hard to generalize, but I would say basically they generally overestimate how exciting it will be and underestimate how incredibly, incredibly difficult it will be. Well, do any of them get close to correct? Has there ever been one movie or one scene you can point that's like, yeah, that's kind of right? 
You know, to be totally honest, while we were writing this book, I've avoided all space settlement science fiction as a policy to not uh, get myself confused. I am told, um, you know, among the, the space geeks I know, the Martian is usually considered pretty accurate. Um, parts of the Expanse are pretty accurate, I'm told. And then the more recent Kim Stanley Robinson stuff is supposed to be pretty, pretty good, if a bit pessimistic. <laughs> okay, Zach. So... That your the tagline of your book says it all. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? But the way you and Kelly approach this is with a ton of research and a ton of facts, but it's also really funny and entertaining. And so I'm wondering <laughs> if it's, you know, what is the serious part and what is the hilarious, absurd part? So, so the, the sort of serious message we're trying to get across, which really takes the whole book to convey, is that the, the space settlement is not only more hard or diff, more difficult than you you may have heard, it's also there are aspects of it that could, read, could lead to sort of ethical quagmires and danger for the planet Earth. Um, where it gets funny, I think for me it's mostly funny because like a lot of this stuff is just bound up in human issues, right? So it has to do with like, you know, you have to make sure the toilet works, which has actually been a serious problem in the history of space, you know, and you have to get along with other countries and the way space law has worked has been kind of funny at times. It's kind of uh, absurd and ludicrous. And, and um, I don't know, so there's just a lot of opportunity for jokes. Like, you know, we have a, a section talking about trauma medicine in space. And it's actually never come up. So all the data comes from people taking pigs in airplanes to like try to perform procedures. So there's just a lot of goofy stuff that like when you when you ask, how do we even know the stuff we think we know? <laughs> I thought when you said that you were going to talk about sort of this broader, bigger question of like, is it so bad here on earth? And we are the ones who made it so bad, if that indeed is true. What do we think we're going to save by going and settling on Mars? Yeah, so the way we say it is like, um, th there's basically nothing you could do to Earth realistically to get it to be as bad as Mars is, right? So like, people will often say, well, if an asteroid hits Earth, we need a second place to go. But if an asteroid hits Earth, even if it's as bad as the one that annihilated most of the dinosaurs, it leaves an Earth that is so much better than Mars, right? So Mars, there's, there's no atmosphere to breathe, the, the ground is toxic, there are worldwide dust storms, I, I could go on. Um, so, you know, one of the big points we make is, is people often talk about uh, space as a way to sort of fix Earth or escape a ruined Earth, and it will do neither um, you know, certainly not in the next century, which is, I, I think you could say is the decisive century for things like climate change. Uh, so, so it just won't do. We, you, there, there is no plan B anytime soon. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Zach Wienersmith. He and his wife have written A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? So, Zach, in addition to just the logistics of getting there and building, are humans capable of actually living on another planet? Because you think about it, we've evolved for this very specific condition. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good point about the, the, the evolution. It's, it's not even just we, it's, it's 4 billion years of life have evolved in this one place, you know. Um, so the first thing to know is if you do survive, it's because you've sort of recreated Earth-like conditions on Mars or the moon or wherever. Um, that said, there would still be unknowns. So we really don't know what happens to a person who is, you know, say in Mars gravity 
for a prolonged period. We know reliably from the International Space Station that astronauts rapidly lose bone mass. Uh, in some studies, it's about 1% in, in certain parts of their bodies per month, bone density loss, like insanely fast. Um, they also rapidly lose uh, muscle health. They, they get vision problems. There's equivocal evidence pointing to cognitive decline. And, uh, and add to that that the longest consecutive stay ever was about a year and a third. It was 437 days, and only a handful of people have gone for more than like 200 days. And almost all of our data is on fully grown men. So we just don't know the answers to a lot of questions. Like, and, and so related to that, if you want a Mars settlement, you have to be able to have children there and, or at least plan for it. And we know almost nothing about reproduction in space for, for not even for lizards, right? And, and so there's yawning gaps in our knowledge of human biology and medicine. So, so the basic answer is, I don't know. And there are a lot of reasons to be worried. That was going to be my next question is about having kids on 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 Mars because again we are built for Earth and so has were you able to find anything about or theorize about what would happen if a child is born on Mars and could that child ever actually go to Earth? It, it it's absolutely an open question. So like, like what I would say is we don't know, but there are a priori reasons to worry. So for example. Martian soil is half a percent to 1% perchlorate. It's a chemical used in dry cleaning. It disrupts thyroid hormones. Uh, probably not good for a developing child, I mean, probably not good for a fully grown adult to be exposed to that, uh, but, but certainly you know, wouldn't want a, a, a fetus or a young child or, or even an adolescent exposed to that. And then you add in, you know, we don't know the effect of long-term exposure to partial Earth gravity. Uh, we don't know the effect if they're exposed to higher radiation doses, which they might be depending on how your settlement is set up. Uh, we don't know the effect of being in one of these closed um, atmospheres, which often have different composition from, from what you would expect on Earth. In fact, on the International Space Station, very different. Um, so we don't know. And then, did, you know, someone sent me a paper. I wish I'd known this for the book. Uh, it was a speculative study, so I don't know if we would have included it. But your vestibular system, which controls like balance and a sense of orientation with respect to gravity, might rely on Earth gravity to form properly in a fetus. So it's possible we don't know. It's possible being in partial gravity as you are gestated and then develop as, as a baby could be, you know, non-trivially impacted. And so, you know, there is some world in which the answer is maybe you could grow up on Mars, but maybe you can't ever go to Earth. Um, but we don't know. Well, I just think about the trauma of childbirth that I went through several times. I can't imagine <laughs> trying to do it on a planet for on which we are not adapted, you know? We're, right. Um, Okay, we have to talk, Zach, a little bit about your background and about <clears throat> your wife Kelly's background. They are very interesting backgrounds. Kelly is in the Biosciences Department at Rice University, and she's been widely published in very prestigious publications, mm -hmm. as have you, but you're nothing like a bioscientist. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm an illustrator uh, and a writer. Um, yeah, yeah. Although, I, can I say I did get a paper out with Kelly because we, we we just released a paper on space communes uh, as a as a as a theoretical framework. So I am I am now a a person in in a boring science journal. That's good. But you're also, I mean, you're you're widely published as well, you know. And that your last book together was uh, soonish. We talked to you previously on Cool Science Radio about that. It ended up being a, a bestseller. What is it about the work that the two of you do and the the depth of your research 
that turns even the most knowledgeable um, aficionados of, of living in space, for living in space, uh, to your work? So we... Um... We kind of bit off more than we could chew with this project. So we, you know, we were like, well, we'll just do the whole story on space settlement. And, and inevitably it turns out that that means you have to learn, you know, a dozen different fields that that often don't even feed into each other, right? So I mean it, it's important. Our view became if you really want to understand settlement, you have to know not just like what space is like and like the biology and the kind of basic hard science, but also the legal framework, which is quite intricate. And um, and then how those pieces interact, because the legal framework is affected by whether there's anything worth doing on the moon and where you might do it. And so, you know, we, we just spent years just reading these technical books. And we, we're lucky because a lot of people, you know, who, who do pop science, you can't always go to an editor and say, give me three years. But we we're lucky that we you know we have like other careers. So we have we can we can say we need the time to do the, the level of depth that the subject warrants. Yeah. What is it about eccentric billionaires <laughs> who think that it's a good idea to set, to create space settlements? Yeah, so the, the main thing I would say, people tend to think, like vis-a-vis -vis space anyway, that Elon Musk is just kind of a grifter, like he's just saying this stuff to attract talent and money. And, you know, I, I'm generally opposed to speculating about people's motivations, but there's really good reason to believe he actually believes this stuff. Uh, from like what he was doing before he became like, I don't know if he's still the richest person in the world, but whatever. Um, uh, same with Jeff Bezos. He's been talking about this since like he was a college student. So I, I think they're just true believers in this kind of old idea that, you know, going to space is going to make us all better. And that there was once this kind of ambitiousness to our culture that was lost somewhere around, you know, 1980 or so, and that it can be gotten back by um, going to Mars. Um, and, and, and we think basically that's that's a misunderstanding of history and, and, and sociology, but it's it's a whole topic. Well, Zach, when I love to watch my sci-fi movies, I always see these massive ships and huge developments. And I think, okay, how did they build those? Where did those materials come from? And you talk about this. How do you build an under, you know, I would say underground settlement on Mars or anything on the moon? You can't just UPS it from the Earth right. to whatever planet you're going to settle on. Yeah, so I mean, the, you know, you know, we we can be fairly pessimistic. One of the bright spots, at least technologically, for space is it really is getting a lot cheaper uh, and easier to launch huge amounts of mass to space, and that's mostly because of SpaceX. There there are other competitors now, but it's it's really because, you know, uh, up until SpaceX, there wasn't like a kind of streamlined model. There weren't reusable rockets, and so that really does change the game. That said, if you're talking about like a, a you know a movie style spaceship, you know that that's harder. Like so, th these new mega rockets that SpaceX is working on that are like the biggest payload ever, are, I think are still rated for something like 250 tons to low Earth orbit, which is like awesome. But I don't know what like these these ships in Star Trek. I don't know. They must be millions of tons or something. So that requires a whole other level of infrastructure, probably on the moon or in the asteroid belt or something. Um, and that's that's pretty far off, we think. All right, so you talked briefly, you, you touched on this briefly about the laws, and I was fascinated by your chapter about what it is to settle space, because we here on Earth, which is basically where we all are, think space is the wild west, the wild frontier. You can you get yeah. to it first, you get it, but that's not the case. And like you said, space laws are weird. 
Tell yeah. us about that. Super weird. So, um, well, you know, um, they're they're weird compared to most of history, but they're not weird compared to what we mostly did in the 20th century, which is, is this wonderful history most people don't know, which is post-1945, a lot of new areas of the universe became available to humanity, and in particular, Antarctica, the bottom of the ocean, and outer space. And, you know, there was a concern at the time that we would fight each other like we probably would have done in the 19th century. And a legal framework was put in place for all of these regimes that essentially says, you know, with variations, that it belongs to everyone and it will be treated as a commons. And under the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, space in particular is a commons that is not subject to national appropriation, which means you can't you can't put a sovereign country on it. Nobody can claim to have a country there. The U.S. can't say there's a state there. Newt Gingrich once proposed claiming the moon as a U.S. state. You can't do that, uh, you know. And it's just, it's very unambiguous. And so you, you will get people talking about this idea, well, we'll just create our country in space. And you you legally can't, but also it's, it's not like there are no teeth to this. It's very easy, you know, these, if you did start a state, it would be so vulnerable. You would have to have help from Earth. So I, I, you know, so people often say, well, it, it doesn't matter what you nerds who care about law think. Elon and me are going to Mars, um, but but they will be so dependent on the home planet. I just don't think it's, it's serious to think that they could violate widely agreed upon international law in, in order to form a state. Mm, yeah. Well, it's funny when you mentioned space along with the deep ocean and Antarctica. Mm -hmm. It's funny that no one really wants to settle either of the other Antarctica or the deep ocean. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's because we really know what that would entail because we've experienced it more, right? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, I, I think, you know, um, Antarctica would be wildly easier than Mars, just just absolutely easier. And it's funny, so if someone came to you and was like, I have this great plan, it's gonna take 18 nuclear reactors in Antarctica and we'll all live in a giant dome. And yes, it will violate international law, but it's okay, it's cool, it's gonna be fine, everybody will think it's awesome. You'd be like, this is obviously crazy. But Mars is a hundred times harder and, and somehow there's a sort of romance about it. And I, I feel this way too, I'm like, somehow it feels like we ought to in a way that's not true for Antarctica. But, but yeah, it really does give you a window into how unlikely and perhaps undesirable it could be. Well, let's talk about how desirable it could be. What are the pros that you see that, that you know, both in a sort of humorous way and in, and in a serious way? Yeah, so, you know, my view, and I, I won't lay this out here, it's all in the book, but the financial case, the military case for doing anything beyond near Earth orbit is basically zero. You may have heard stories about the, the riches to be got in space, and we're just extremely skeptical. Um, that, you know, there, there is literally stuff that has value in space, but the truth is the really valuable stuff on this planet, first of all, that stuff is, is all available here if we want to spend the money to get it. But if you look at where wealth comes from, it is not minerals. Most of the wealth that humans have is from ideas. Uh, and institutions, right? Right. Like if you pick up a computer chip, the amount of stuff in it is it's like a little bit of sand, right? It's its the ideas that, that allow you to make it that make you wealthy. And so my view is there's no good reason to do space settlement anytime soon, except that it's awesome. Um, there, there's, there's a deep sort of aesthetic urge to do it, but I think recognizing it as an aesthetic urge tells you what we should do here, which is that we should wait until we can do it in a way that's safe and ethical. Well, Zach, so much of the conversation I've heard about populating another planet and some of the books I've read in the past is about saving humankind. 
Yeah. Well, wouldn't it just be faster and cheaper and more fair to spend all that energy and money and resource and ideas here on Earth to just save our mm -hmm. planet? I, I would say I'm, I'm kind of a split mind on this. So, so in fairness to the people who want to do this, there actually is not that much money directly spent on space settlement. So like Elon Musk talks a lot about space settlement. NASA talks somewhat about it, but most of the money spent on space, the vast majority of the space economy is low earth orbit satellites that do like data transmission and navigation and remote sensing. So I don't think there's like a sort of straightforward trade-off. I think the, the, the main use of space settlement visions is to attract talent and maybe attract money into companies. Um, but I, I, the other thing I would say is like the way government budgets work, it's not as if you cut off a stupid thing and it all goes to a good thing. You know, we can all think of big science projects that got canceled and it's not like that money instantly went to like social welfare or something, I don't think. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical of, of the, let, let's, let's, let's focus on down here. Um, I will say, you know, the concern that some people have is like, so if you go back to the 70s, there were these proposals to spend vast amounts of money, like trillions of dollars on, um, you know, these space-based settlements to do solar power. And, and some of the advocates for that were opposed to solar photovoltaic on Earth. And if we had gone the way they had proposed, it would have been disastrous, right? As opposed to the really boring work of just slowly developing better photovoltaic panels at lower prices and more energy per area. So I think there's a trade-off in terms of what we want to prioritize, but but I wouldn't say that, that it's a money trade-off yet. And then Zach, you said earlier too, that you've, you've spoken with so many people about this book, done all this research. And a lot of the people that you talk to, they have to have this pie in the sky, like this is going to be mm -hmm. great. They have to hang on to that vision because otherwise, they wouldn't, you know, they'd, pro they'd probably just give up. But yeah. has any of them given you pushback about possibly pointing out some of the flaws in their plans? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so I think in my experience for a lot of people, the idea of space settlement is tied in with a kind of conception of humanity and what's sort of gone wrong with us. So a lot of people who want to set up a Mars settlement want to do it because they think the earth has become kind of wussified and bureaucratized and, you know, kind of generally boring. And if we just had this sort of open frontier on Mars, we would get better. And this is an idea that's, that goes back over a century. It's founded in the idea that the U S used to have a quote unquote frontier and that made us great. Um, obviously that, is correctly considered fairly offensive now, but it's also just historically incorrect. Uh, you know, that the, the people who invented our democracy were powdered wig guys in, on the East Coast who lived in palaces. Um, so, <laughs> so it's just historically incorrect. Um, but I do think it's, it's tied into a kind of nice view of humanity, which I, I don't entirely want to re reject, but I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that it hinges on Earth sucking, because uh, I think Earth is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is pretty good. At least it's what we know. And, yes. you know, I'm picturing, I know you live in Virginia on a farm with your two mm -hmm. kids. I'm picturing it being very beautiful, these rolling hills and woods and very bucolic. And I'm thinking, for sure, you don't want to go to Mars, personally. I, do I don't even want to go to low Earth orbit. I, I, but I'm a wimp. Okay, let me say, I'm, I'm very impressed by astronauts. I'm not doing, I don't even like roller coasters. <laughs> <laughs> and after all, you did come up with the word wussified. And wussified. I'm, I'm that's right. Yeah. Put it in the dictionary. <laughs> I'm wondering if that's in the urban dictionary yet. <laughs> oh gosh. I I love this.
one of the interviews we did on Cool Science Radio oh, in the last couple of years is a Park City-based company that is focused on the commercialization of space. In other words, I mean, this is great business opportunity. And if you're out there in the forefront of commercializing and how you're going to get your business there, as we were doing the the interview, I was thinking, is is this real? Am I in a parallel reality? And I'm wondering if in your research, you've found the same sort of thing is that people are and businesses are, you know, looking at this as a profitable endeavor. Yeah, I mean, so uh, Luxembourg, for example, spent a bunch of taxpayer money uh, funding asteroid mining companies that I don't think even fielded a spacecraft. So so I, I do think that investors seem to be beguiled by some of these ideas. I will say, I mean, there's loads of money to be made in space doing stuff for Earth, right? Uh, so like, you know, you, you have a GPS in your pocket that requires space and, and there's, there's mapping and all sorts of cool stuff. It's just that once you get past about 24,000 miles out, which is where you can synchronize orbit with Earth, it's like the last important orbit, there's basically nothing worth doing economically. There's wonderful stuff that's worth doing for science. I'm basically skeptical of just about everything else. Um, you know, people will tell you, well, then why did it get $100 million in venture capital? And I think after like Juicero, that argument is no longer working. You know, the v- v- VC doesn't prove anything. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I would say I, I'm fairly skeptical of, of any proposals beyond that distance. Well, we were talking earlier about a lot of this being theoretical because we've never actually lived on Mars, mm-hmm. but you do talk about biosphere one and biosphere two and that experience. Give our readers a quick summary of that because I yeah. just thought it was, in, it was such an interesting lesson in human behavior. Yeah. So, so, you know, one of the big things you have to do if you want to live out of space is basically build a bubble earth. And so we don't have a lot of experience with creating a sealed container in which an ecosystem exists and creates its own self-sustaining atmosphere. Um, the biggest system like that ever built was in the early nineties. It was called biosphere two. It was on, it was a greenhouse. If you want to visualize it about three, it was 3.14 acres and it's widely remembered as a joke. There was a Polly Shore movie about it. I think in the mid nineties, it was not, Great, um, but uh, but you know we argue there's it would have been good for space settlement if they could have kept it up because th- there were a lot of problems like but pe- they sent eight people in eight people came out alive they were kind of starving at one point they kind of suffocated a bit but oh when they you know split into two factions that wouldn't speak to each other for like a year but they did come out alive. And it's like, we, we do need data on how to be, build an ecosystem with humans in it where they can survive without help. Because, you know, if you can do that, you get not just air and food, but you also get like waste management, like really crucial stuff for Mars. But unfortunately, you know, there's only been a few experiments since and they've all been much lower scale. So it's just this entire field of science, these closed loop ecologies, so-called, that we had almost no knowledge of. And it's like awesome. I wish, I wish like in another life, this would be a really fun area to study as a career. Well, our guest has been Zach Wiener-Smith. He and his wife have written A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? I tell you what, you read this book and you will never look at another sci-fi movie the same ever again. Zach, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City.